Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. This morning we're going to look at um, the book of Titus. And it's a very short book, just three chapters, very short chapters. And the background of Titus is that Paul, as he was going and preaching and evangelizing to the Gentiles, he went to the island of Crete. And as he was there, he evangelized on the island of Crete. Crete is an island in the Mediterranean Sea, somewhere between Italy and Israel. And Paul evangelized there, but he had to go on because he was going on and evangelizing, and that was his work. But he had men to help him, and one of them was Timothy, or I'm sorry, Titus. Timothy was another one. One of them was Titus, and Titus was left on the island of Crete with specific instructions to establish the churches, to establish the governments of the churches, to establish leadership and elders. That was his job. And immediately what we'll find out is that Titus encountered opposition to the work that he was made to do. So we're going to go through the book. We're not going to read the entire book, but uh, Brandon, or I don't know who's on the slides today, they will be following along as best they can as I go through. And sometimes I'm going to go to other scriptures as well. You won't see those on the screen, but you will see a good bit of the book of Titus on the screen as we go through it. And the book starts out with a promise of God, talking about the promise of God. And so it begins, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. And so here at the beginning, he's talking about something that's, that's been ha- happening for a long time. There's a promise that has, been, that has been out there for a long time, and now the promise is manifested. If I started quoting this verse to you, can you finish it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have... Man, that was pitiful. Should not perish, but have. Okay. If you think about those two words, everlasting life, you'll understand a good bit of the book of Titus. Because as we're going to see, the book of Titus is in many ways about everlasting life. And as it begins, it says that the promise has manifested, and the promise is the hope of eternal life. Jesus has come, and he is the fulfillment. There is no eternal life without Jesus Christ. And Jesus has come. He's incarnate. He lived. He died. He was raised from the dead. He brought with his resurrection the hope of eternal life for all of us. 
There is no eternal life without Jesus Christ. And now that reality is manifested. It's a promise of God. He had made it a long time ago. And now it's manifested. Eternal life. And so the manifestation is attended by a truth. And the scripture says that that truth is according to godliness in verse 1. Can you go back to verse 1, please? For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. Now, according to godliness means that this truth has an authentic stamp. How many of you have ever heard of a Henry rifle? Anybody? Okay, if you're a guy and you've ever watched a Western or read a Western novel, you, you've heard of a Henry rifle, I'm sure. Henry rifles are, are these, just these amazing things. The, the old ones came with just a wooden stock, but they didn't have a wooden hand grip. They just had this long metal barrel, and they, and they would, would uh, you, mean you could, you could uh, shoot a buffalo with it, or you could drive in a, a tent peg with it. I mean, this thing was a rugged piece of metal. But it was famous, and it was in part famous because during the Civil War, it came into use, and it was mostly the North that had access to Henry rifles, and it did make some difference in the war. And one Confederate officer is credited with saying, you load it on Sunday, and it shoots all week long. <laughs> because usually these guys, remember, they were like, loading these long barrel muskets and putting in a ball, or they, were, they had this real cumbersome thing, they opened it up and they put in one shell and they closed it up, and that if they were lucky. But with the Henry rifle, you just took and chambered a shell, you shot it, chambered a shell, you shot it. And many times it was the difference in skirmishes. But if you buy a Henry rifle today, they still make them. And let me tell you, if you buy a Henry rifle, and you show it to your friend, and it says, made in Taiwan on the rifle, your friend is going to mock you. Because no Henry rifle is made in Taiwan. They're made in the USA, all together. An authentic Henry rifle with the authentic stamp is going to be made in the USA. It will have the mark of a Henry rifle. Well, here we have an authentic stamp about truth. Because what's said here is that truth, the truth that Paul is bringing, is that which is according to godliness. It's according to godliness. Godliness, piety, the conscience that's alive to the Spirit of God, reverent in the fear of the Lord. It's not just a, a, a truth that's just out there with nothing, no indicators of its presence. It's got a stamp on it, and the stamp is that it's accompanied by godliness. It's the truth according to godliness. And that's very important to what's going to be coming later in the book of Titus. And so we go on into the next section, uh, verse 5, and you see uh, maybe the first use of the word for as a subordinating conjunction for connecting what's before and what's after, okay? And so in verse 5, it says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And then he goes into the qualifications for elders. 
Anybody familiar with any of the qualifications for elders? Okay, we talk about these regularly when we have annual meetings and we, we uh, ordain elders for, for leading the church. We talk about the qualifications. They're character qualifications, aren't they? And why do we typically think that we have to have, that these men have to be qualified with these qualifications of character? What's the main reason we usually think of, the surface reason immediately? It's, it's not inappropriate, but what's the main reason? Well, the main reason I think we think of is we don't want them to make us look bad. Do we? Anybody here? Okay. And we don't want them to make God look bad, right? We don't want them to bring a bad reputation on on God. But if you think about this, when we typically read these qualifications in a very discreet setting, that's what we think about, that that they're qualified and they're able to do it. But here we have Paul writing to Titus, and and he's telling him what these men need to do and what they're qualified to do. And it's not simply that they won't be bringing bad reputation on God. That is a reason. But he's in a real setting on Crete with a real situation. And so what he's saying to him flows, okay? We have a hope. We have a salvation of eternal life. We have truth that's according to godliness. And then it flows. You need to appoint these elders, and they need to have these characteristics and these qualifications. And it's absolutely necessary. Why? Well, we come to verse 10. Why is spelled out in verse 10. And we have another one of those uses of the word for. You can put in because. Why do you have to have elders? Why do they have to have these qualifications? Well, because there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain, dirty money. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed." Now, that's pretty strong. The word detestable there is connected to the word stink. It's pretty strong. These guys are stinkers. They're bad. Okay? And so you have Paul bringing this message. He said, look, you've got this mess. I've got this message. We've set it up in Crete. You're supposed to appoint the men. They have to have these kind of characteristics, this character about them, because... This is your situation there in good old Crete. You have these guys. And if you don't have somebody who's going to be able to deal with these guys, it's all going to go down the toilet. It's just a mess. Okay? And so those qualifications for elder somehow have a much broader application when we see it in this context. Much, much broader. 
Good, she, good leadership was immediately necessary to combat bad influences. The Judaizers were there, and they were doing their thing, trying to get people to get circumcised and come back to the ceremonial law, and you had to do this or you couldn't be a Christian. They were there. They were a bad influence. And then you had the Cretans themselves, and they were a bad influence. Among God's people, there's always a camouflaged element of opposition to God. There's always this camouflaged element going on of opposition to God. Those who are troublesome, those who are difficult. If you, if you were at the men's retreat, you heard Dan uh, Cole as he was talking about the, the men in the wilderness from Numbers chapter 11. They were called the rabble. So the people of Israel were moving through the wilderness, and there was a group of the men in that group moving along, an element in the group called the rabble among them. And the rabble among them started complaining and getting other people to complain. They had a, a leavening influence on the people, and they were getting other people to complain. And they were complaining about the fact that all they had to eat was manna, right? I don't know what it would be like to eat manna. I've read the descriptions of it, and I always think it's baklava. Every day, God rained baklava down on the ground. I don't know. It says it tastes like honey and coriander, and I think, well, that sounds like baklava. I don't know, but these men were upset because they wanted to be, oh, we're back in Egypt. We had all kinds of stuff. We had these vegetables, and we had, these, we had meat, and we had all this stuff. And they got the people to be upset and bitter toward God. And you know, if you know the account, that God said, I'm going to give you meat. Oh, yeah. It's going to run out of your nostrils. I'm going to give you a meat so long and so much that it's, you're going to be sick of that meat, right? But that was the, the Cretans. They were these ones that were uh, not according to godliness, but they were the rabble. It was in them to be rabble, Right? Is it in you to be rabble? Uh, Matthew Henry says, the Cretans, even to a proverb, they were infamous for falsehood and lying. To play the Cretan or to lie is the same. You ever turn to your child when they lie? You're playing the Cretan. You could. They wouldn't maybe know what you meant, but it might help them if you explained it. They were compared to evil beasts for their sly hurtfulness and savage nature and called, in the King James Version, slow bellies for their laziness and sensuality, more inclined to eat than to work and live by some honest employment. And so even the heathens, Matthew Henry says, identified their wickedness and in their proverb or their poem, this prophet of their own said, this is a Cretan, he is a liar always, an evil beast, a lazy glutton. This is always a Cretan. And so Paul in, in 2 Thessalonians, when he writes to the church there, they had this problem. They had people who were there and they would eat, but they wouldn't do any work. And so they were like Cretans. And so Paul said, 
uh, when I was with you, I gave this order. If anyone is not willing to work, he should not eat either. That was how it was handled. Because they lived and they shared food. And if he's not going to work, he's not going to eat. You know, it used to be when people would stand on the corner with a sign, it would say, we'll work for food, right? We all have this thing in mind. It's funny because there it is in, in Thessalonians. If he doesn't work, he doesn't eat. And we have a guy on the road and he holds the sign and he says, I will work for food. Everybody has this sense of, well, you know, if you're going to get some food, you ought to really do something, right? But nowadays, they don't even say that. It says, you know, she has three dogs by her and she says, my dogs are hungry. Help me feed my children. You know, it's just that, it's gotten that ludicrous now. But the Cretans were understood to be this way, taking advantage. And so Paul is profiling. He's using their poet, but he's profiling. He's painting with a broad brush. He's, he's using their poet, and I, I was thinking about how to to explain the poet. So somehow there's a proverb or there's something that their own guy wrote, their own prophet wrote, and how is that like today? And I think it would be like a lyricist, but not a, but not a lying lyricist, right? A truth-telling lyricist, maybe an old Bob Dylan, you know, one of those kinds of truth-telling lyricists who would write something and it would kind of get at something that was true and expose something and so people would sing it and say, yeah, we've got a problem. And so that's, what, that's kind of what this guy was doing that, that Paul is quoting. So if we had a lyricist and he was quoting, you know, he was singing, but he wasn't trying to flatter the West Side or flatter Owen County, right? You know, my son said to me one day, well, you know, Dad, they're having a, a wine tasting tour in Owen County. And I just laughed. I didn't even know they had vineyards in Owen County. I thought you did meth tasting tours in Owen County. And so he said, you know, they're having a wine tasting tour. But see, if one of our poets, if one of our lyricists was writing, he wouldn't write about the wine tasting tours in Owen County. Not if he was going to be truthful, right? And so you have that reality in Bloomington as well. What would, we, what would our poets say? What would our lyricists say if he was writing in Bloomington? and he wasn't trying to bolster tourism here. He would say, well, uh, if you remember, for those of you who don't know, we used to have a piece of property on the south side in town that we owned. And it was where we were going to build our building. And God mercifully uh, brought us into a different situation. But one of the things that happened when we were in uh, uh, city township meetings about the building, people came to oppose us building a church on this property. It was down in a valley. There were housing complexes up on the hills. And one of the things that the people said was, we don't want to listen to children playing. Now, I think that's what the lyricists would write about. They hate children. Now, nobody likes a child when they scream in your ear, but if they're off on the playground and you hear that joyful banter and screeching and laughing and you know all that kind of stuff you just think the world is good right that's the way you should understand the sound of children no how do these things affect us 
I mean. I write about Owen County, or the guy writes about Owen County, or the guy writes about Bloomington. And remember, when Paul was writing about the Cretans, he just kind of said, the Cretans. Big brush. The Cretans. And you know, here we are, the Bloomingtonians, or the West Siders, and what would the lyricist write about us? And would we be offended that we got painted in with such a, a broad brush? And if you think about the sins that attend this community, and there's lots of them, are they present here? Do they have a place among us? Do you have vulnerability in sin? Do you sense any danger? Are you happy to listen to the disrupting influencers, the, the Cretans around you? 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13, it says, I wrote in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I didn't mean the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. <clears throat> Again, this is one of those places where we think of this verse, but we only think of it corporately. We only think of these verses corporately. Remove the wicked man. So we got a group, and, and we all kind of recognize the, the wicked man. Okay, Jimmy's not the wicked man, but let's say we're all this big group, and, and there's Jimmy, and, and we say, hey, yeah, kick Jimmy out. He's bad influence on us. But that's not how you read this verse. These verses aren't simply about the, the group, right? Because associations aren't just by the group, as a group. You know, when, when we're invited over to somebody's house, does everybody come? Hey, you know, come on over to the house. Okay, I'll just bring the church. Because, you know, we're a group. No. Don't associate. Well, remove the immoral man, the wicked man. Is it just corporate? Or is it just the group? Or does it include the individual space? Sometimes I get a report from somebody and they'll say, you know, somebody in our church wrote something on Facebook or somebody in our, that used to be in our church wrote something on Facebook and, and you better look at it because I'm concerned about it. Listen, I don't police your Facebook, trust me. I pretty much don't like Facebook, except for when I see my grandchildren's videos, those are okay. But if somebody says something like that to me, I feel obligated, I'm gonna go and look at it. So I go and look at it, and then if I have a concern, but I look at who else is looking at it, and I click on this, and I click on this, and, and I find out, well, there's some people that they're, you know, they're kind of, they're, their entire attitude toward us is they want us dead. And then I see, well, I can see all their friends, and then I see your names. You're friends with, on Facebook, those people whose entire attitude is for us to be dead. Right? Now I know, you're not tending your Facebook that way, don't worry. Right? But 
are you having any kind of interaction with those people so as to say, uh, I don't want to associate with that person, or even to say to them, did you write this? You could go to them and say, my dear Facebook friend, my beloved Facebook friend, with whom I have Facebooked now, according to the thing, 10 years, I noticed that you have this attitude and you realize that you call yourself a Christian. You understand what I'm getting at. The, the reality isn't Facebook. The reality is whether or not we are actually attending the work of protecting ourselves and not allowing ourselves to be influenced by wickedness and ungodliness. That's just one little example. But that's the reality of the book of Titus. It's what's going on. It's what's being uh, taught. It's what's being brought in the book. And so watch out for the false teachers. Watch out for those who are bringing lies, who are looking at this thing and not looking at truth, that are worried about, you know, I saw this video of a, of a, of a traffic jam and this truck throws some garbage out. The video is a dash cam and the truck up there and he throws some garbage out and then the car between the dash cam and that, and that truck the guy gets out and he's this muscular young guy and he walks over and he grabs the garbage and throws it back in the window. And he's incensed by polluting, right? And, and, and what? That's like the commandments of men. I'm not for polluting, but you know. Does he go down and take the murdered body parts of our aborted children and throw them into the doorway of... Planned Parenthood? Now, I'm not suggesting you do that. I'm just suggesting that you see context and reality for laws that are men's laws and laws that are God's laws. Thou shalt not kill has been around for a long time. Thou shalt not toss your Wendy's bag out. Not so much. Right? Perspective on what godliness is. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. They're detestable, disobedient, worthless for any good deed. And so are we detestable? How are we smelling? Is our piety just an empty shell? Or is there true godliness in us? Do we have evidence of the transforming power of God's work in our lives? You know, in 2 Timothy 3 it says that there are men who hold to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power. And it's not talking about holding to a form of godliness with no power in that those people can't walk on water. We don't go around and say to people, I have godliness with power. Watch me walk on water. That's not what we do. Because the context of that is those who deny its power are lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, unforgiving, bitter irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. No power. What does it mean for them to have no power? What it means is they don't obey their parents. There's no godliness. If you're a child here and you don't obey your parents, you should think about whether or not you have a relationship to Jesus Christ whether there's any godliness in you.
We often use this passage in James 4 to address fights between couples. You know, I know the pastors use this all the time. What causes quarrels and conflicts among you is not the source, is not the source your pleasures that wage war against your members. It's, a, it's an appropriate application of that verse, but it goes on in, in verse 4 of that chapter to say, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so we have that chapter pulling into the reality of godliness. There's living uh, a truth that is according to godliness, and then there's whatever this is. It isn't the truth according to godliness. It has no value at all. It has no power. Do we even pretend piety? Do we boast of an impious profession of faith? Claiming Christ as our Savior with no conscience alive at all to the Spirit of God. You know, when I'm out riding my lawnmower, you can't see into my heart to see whether my heart is plagued by my sin. You can't see into my heart whether I'm saying to God, I don't even feel bad, and I know that's wrong. You can't see any of those struggles going on inside of me. And when you're riding your lawnmower or doing your dishes, whatever you're doing, I can't see those things in you. You realize we have a responsibility. There are times when it's evident around us. There are times when we see the evidence of someone who's acting like a Cretan. But lots of times we have Cretans' hearts and there's nothing going on in there. And God says, no, no, this isn't, the, this isn't the hope for eternal, this isn't the path for the hope for eternal life. It doesn't lie in a, in a godless kind of living. And so I have to get done. We get to Titus 2, verses 1 to 10, and he goes through the list of old men, old women, young women, young men, and bond slaves. And we all think that Titus 2 is about Titus 2 women, right? Isn't it about Titus 2 women? Nope, it is. But it's about a whole lot more because it is the very practical application of what he's trying to protect them from. You have the elders who are supposed to provide oversight to protect against the Cretans, and then you have Titus 2 that's supposed to fill all the hearts of the listeners to say, be on guard against the Cretans by living obediently to God, by being godly. This is how you should live. And then we come to the big picture statement, which is in Titus 2, starting at verse 11. You know, if you know about baseball, I was talking to Jake about this last night. I had read about this, uh, you know, because I've never played. I did play a little baseball in grade school, but Jake has played baseball. Some of you others have played baseball. If you know anything about baseball, you know that on a bat, there's a spot called a sweet spot. Everybody hear of a sweet spot on a bat? Okay, so if the ball, the fastball comes at you and you swing and the ball hits right out the end, one inch from the end of the bat, what's going to happen? You're going to feel a nice warm tingle in your hands? No, you're going to feel this pow, because all the kinetic energy of that ball is going to come right to the end of the bat and grab your hands and shake them and molest them in such a way that you're going to want to drop it. Then there's another place on the bat that's right above your hands, on the, 
uh, as the bat is going up, you hit that end out there, you're not going to hit a home run. You get this spot that's right above your hands, right here, what happens when it hits there? It might snap the bat, but again, your hands are going to bear the brunt of this, and it's going to sting you. But what happens when that fastball hits the sweet spot right on? What happens? All the kinetic energy that was coming at that bat from that pitcher's arm with that ball hits that sweet spot, and that bat in its structure just says, okay, this is what I was made for. And it just takes that energy, and it just shoves it right back into the ball. And that ball just goes flying. And the, and the, and the batter's hands... Hardly feels a thing. Well, what he feels is, I just got a good hit. That's what he feels. Well, here we come to the point in Titus where you get the good hit. You get the sweet spot. It connects to the beginning of the, of the book, and it connects to the end of the book, and he's bringing out the macro, the big picture, and he again uses that word for. He's connecting all these together. You can't read Titus as little spots here. I'm going to take this spot, this spot, this spot. He's connecting again that word for. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. It's everything he's been saying up to that point. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Everything up to that point, and then he brings back the hope. Now, some Bibles say, looking for the blessed hope and. I think the King James and the NASB say that. There is a way to interpret it where you say, uh, looking for the blessed hope, even the return, which is putting the emphasis of the hope being on the return of Christ. There is hope in the return of Christ. It is a wonderful, joyous thing. But I think in the, context, in the context of this book, at the beginning he talks about the hope of eternal life. At the end, in what we're going to hear is the benediction, he talks about the hope of eternal life. And right in the middle, in chapter 2, he says, looking for the blessed hope. And I believe it's the hope of eternal life. This is what's offered to us. Eternal life through the work of Jesus Christ. The escape of the wrath of God poured out on us. But being delivered to eternal bliss and eternal joy in the presence of God. That's what's offered to us. That's the sweet spot. And it doesn't mean that we live sinlessly. If you read 1 John chapter 1, you'll see that we have sin, and if we deny we have sin, we're liars, it says. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just, and he will forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is where we live. That's the place where we have truth that is according to godliness. We live before God and in his presence in that sweet spot. That's where we dwell. That's where we live. That's where life is. That's walking in the light as he is in the light. That's having Christ's blood applied to us to deliver us from our sin. And as you go on in the book, he talks more instructions, and then as I said, he gets to 
in chapter 3, that benediction, which I will read at the end. Again, referencing the hope of eternal life. So this morning, if you're here and you've been here for years, and you don't understand the realities of having truth that is according to godliness, because it it doesn't reside in you, beg with God to give you the the knowledge of your own heart to have you to see the ways in which you must come to godliness. And that his salvation applied to you has in its train a life of godliness and a rejection of worldliness and cretinism. Okay? And if this is your first time here and, and you would never heard about Jesus Christ, I would say the same thing to you. I'd be glad to talk to you more. Maybe there's some gaps in this whole thing you need to hear. I'd be glad to speak with you. But understand that God did love the world. And He did give His Son, who did die for us, so that anyone who would believe on Him would have eternal life. That is our hope. And it's a beautiful hope. Beautiful hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you are kind to us, considering us even though we are weak. You know our frame that we're made of dust. And you're patient with us in our sin. You forgive us. Lord, please would you open our eyes to see how we are offenders and how we may become godly. Would you give us a desire and a a posture toward godliness so that we will be pleasing to you and that we will enjoy with anticipation the hope of eternal life that you've laid before us. We thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.